So Alex, do you want to do a cold open? We could do a literal cold open. <laughs> if you're listening to this and you've listened to other episodes, you might notice I sound more nasally and congested. Um, what were you telling me before, Michael, about the I pollen? Like, yeah, it, uh, I, I was reading an article that suggested that uh, people have worse allergies this year because of climate change. It has released more pollen into the world. And there are less bees to clean it up. <laughs> there are fewer bees. Fewer bees, right. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it is a little cold open because it's also very cold outside. It is, and it's cold in here. Man, <laughs> just a cold, cold world in which we live. <laughs> and with that, welcome to the Canadian Jewish Moose. I'm your host, Michael Freeman. And I'm Alex Rose. And today I'm very, very excited to be having a phone call with a woman I... Uh, I would say idolize. Uh, she's she's a big deal. Her Emily Nussbaum. She is the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning TV critic for The New Yorker, a prominent voice of feminism and Judaism and all things pop culture. That's going to be coming up in just a minute. But before that, we're going to be talking about uh, Imam Hassan Gieh, a liberal candidate in Montreal for the upcoming election. And he was recently dropped because of some anti-Israel and um, some would say anti-Semitic tweets and, and statements of his that came to light. And on the note of anti-Semitism, we're also going to be asking, do Jews really need to worry about anti-Semitic newspapers that nobody reads? All right, Alex, where should we start this episode? Um, I suppose with the imam. So, Alex, uh, I don't know much about this imam. Uh, probably a lot of our listeners don't necessarily either. Um, you've actually written about him before. So can you give us just a brief overview about the kind of work that he's done? Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know so much about him, but I did cover an event that he was at called Hate to Hope. It was about creating more resilient um, religious communities in the wake of tragedies, specifically the uh, Quebec City mosque shooting and the Pittsburgh shooting. Um, So he spoke along with Marnie Feinberg, who's the daughter-in-law of Joyce Feinberg, a Toronto native who was killed in Pittsburgh at Holy Blossom Temple, and I went to cover it. And, you know, a, a, a shul in Toronto invited him to speak. He spoke a lot about combating anti-Semitism. He considers himself someone who stands up against hatred, and that's, you know, part of what motivated him to run in this election. Um, and so he yeah, hasn't... Sorry, he was running uh, where and, and for what party? So he was running in a Montreal riding for the Liberals, um, I forget the name of the writing off the top of my head. Uh, it's Saint something, Saint something. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Quebec listeners. Go on. Well, yeah, he just hasn't fully responded yet. So it's interesting. So even though he has spoken in the past about um, this kind of interfaith unity and resilience, uh, he was dropped by the Liberal Party for making anti-Semitic remarks or anti-Israel remarks. W- what did he say? So here's an article I found on Global News from a few days ago. So B'nai B'rith brought um, these following remarks to the Liberal Party's attention. Um, so reading directly from the article now, one of the posts the group was alarmed by from 2017 said in Arabic, after nine months in a prison in occupied Palestine, we congratulate Sheikh Salah for his release and his resistance. We ask God to speed up the release of all the prisoners as well as of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and all of Palestine. And then... Okay, so that's pro-Palestinian, not explicitly anti-Israel. I think... I mean, to be pro-Palestinian is to be anti-Israel, but it's not like he's saying, you know... It's possible when he says all of Palestine, though, he means, like, from the river to the sea, like, all of Palestine. 
Okay, I mean, that's reading into a translated tweet, but <laughs> it's go true. on. It's, it's hard to say. He also told Radio Canada that Trump's motive for moving the embassy was because his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who he described as an ultra-Orthodox Jew and a pro-Israel fundamentalist, um, well, he said during the election, Trump said it was America first, but now with his son-in-law, it's Israel first. And then, as B'nai B'rith pointed out, Jewish control over government is a classic anti-Semitic metaphor. Yeah. That doesn't strike me as that offensive a comment. You know what? He made it in 2017. Maybe it's just the last two years have had <laughs> wildly worse uh, comments about uh, uh, the relationship between Jews and Americans. Um, that just strikes me as, as being standard in line with the kind of stuff you see from, from the farther reaches of the American left right now. Uh, which we're so, maybe I'm just desensitized to. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm especially surprised a that a Canadian would get so involved in American U.S. politics, and b that the Canadian liberals would drop him for that. It, it doesn't seem drop worthy. I mean, I think it's a political move because the neighbors said they should drop him, and then Andrew Shear said Justin Trudeau's to Trudeau is like you have to drop him, and they're just like, well, th- is this a fight worth fighting right now? And they probably said no. I mean, I am a little disappointed. I think it's fair to drop him for that if you if the party thinks it goes against their values and he doubles down on it. But I think, like, you know, we talked about Rana Zaman um, a few weeks ago. and I I'm sorry, he talked about what? That was the NDP candidate, the one that I, I know from Halifax, actually, who, who said stuff, including comparing Israel to Nazis. And, mm-hmm. and I think what's different is she said that stuff as a candidate when she was already chosen. But I, I wish that we gave people more chances to to respond to allegations before dropping them just in general because i think you know if he's willing to state unequivocally that he agrees with the party which is in this case that israel should continue to exist as a jewish state and has its right to self-determination i'm not even talking about my own beliefs now but i'm talking about whatever the party believes they presumably dropped him because he disagreed with them and really probably because it was just a better political move it wasn't worth it I, I could see the argument. It does go against the Liberal Party's uh, pro-Israel stance. Like the, yeah. the Liberal Party is is the pro-Palestinian politics have largely been relegated to the NDP and the Greens, who are yeah. who are uh, wavering on whether or not to take up BDS as an official mm-hmm. platform. Right? They, yeah. they have the factions. The Liberal Party is much more pro-Israel, and so I could see the argument that if one MP isn't on board with that, it's not worth it. But that's holding that. If you take that argument, then you're holding every MP to the standard of, or every candidate even, to the standard of supporting every single liberal party message, which seems a little strict. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) It's also modern Canadian politics, except in the Conservative Party, where you're allowed to vote your conscience, unless it's against (laughs) abortion or or gay rights now, apparently. But that's a topic for another day. Based on all that, it it seems a little tenuous that they would drop him from the ticket entirely. Uh, The man is... As far as I can tell, and based on your reporting, clearly not anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. um, however, certainly anti-Zionist. As we've discussed before, and I think should be noted, the two are not the same thing. But Alex, wh- wh- what are your impressions of all this? Yeah, I, I just wish he'd had a little bit of a chance to defend himself and, and say what he actually believes. It's also possible his opinions have changed in the last few years, because I don't know how much interfaith work he did before, but he's been doing a lot with the Jew- Jewish community. And, you know, I think he should have earned some goodwill and at least the benefit of the doubt or at least a chance to to have a say um ideally but of course politically i just don't think it was worth it for the liberals to fight this fight a few weeks before the elections 
Well, next up, we're going to be asking, do Jews really need to worry about newspapers that nobody reads that are also anti-Semitic? Th th there's been two instances of this in Ontario in the last month. I mean, they've been going on for years, but... <laughs> that have come to a head in the last month. That have come to a head, that have been written about in the Canadian Jewish news in the last month. <clears throat> One is a somewhat uh, smaller paper. We, we published a story uh, a bit over a week ago. There was a Polish newspaper that was accused of anti-Semitism. It's called Goniek. That's my best Polish. <laughs> and uh, it's based out of Mississauga, Ontario. It has a circulation, a weekly circulation of 1,000... Okay, it's not nothing, but it's not a lot. Uh, it's all in Polish. And some of the comments that they made, according to B'nai Brit, which uh, uh, B'nai Brit's getting a, lot of <laughs> getting a lot of play on this week's podcast. Um, B'nai Brit has translated the articles, pointed out that they have accused Jews and Zionists of having, quote, terrorism in their blood. The paper has also urged readers to, quote, stand up to the Jews in response to their attempts to destroy Poland. Um, the editor w was was contacted by uh, CJN reporter uh, Paul Lungan, who wrote the story for us, and he defended all the comments, basically <laughs> saying that, that they were misconstrued, that a lot of this was historically accurate. It was <laughs> about it was about the uh, uh, Israeli terrorist, Zionist terrorist groups, and, and et cetera, et cetera. You can read the full... Did he also say that Polish citizens were in no part complacent in, in uh, killing Jews during World War II? I don't know if that <laughs> came up, to be honest with you. Um, if you want to read the full article, you can read it in the show notes and at cjnews.com. But this is just one, just one newspaper of two newspapers publishing anti-Semitic comments. Do you know about the other? Do you want to talk about the other one? No, I want to hear what you're talking about. Okay, I'll talk about the other one. Uh, Your Ward News, Toronto's favorite publication that is somehow printed. I don't know where they get the money for any of this. Um, for those who aren't from the GTA or from Toronto, there's a there's a, a newspaper called Your Ward News that has been around for, oh, a while, I think. The, the paper claims to have a circulation of 50,000. It's a quarterly. I am skeptical of that number. They also were regarded as hate speech to the point that Canada Post stopped distributing it, so they just handed out to people door-to-door -door whether people want it or not. If yeah, you're my uncle got some. I'm sure he was thrilled. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, if you don't know about the guy who runs it, the editor-in-chief, bear, bear with me for a moment as I read to you snippets of his Wikipedia biography. This man's name is James Sears. He is a, uh, a perennial political candidate, which means he always loses. He's a professional pickup artist under the pseudonym Dimitri the Lover. And I did not know about that. He was the editor. Oh, you can buy his book and learn how you too can be as successful as Dimitri the Lover. And he was the <laughs> editor of an anti-Semitic tabloid promoting his own new constitution party. The newspaper is titled Your Word News and was barred from distribution uh, by Canada Post in 2016. He tried to be a mortgage broker, but his application for a mortgage broker's license was denied by the regulatory body. He's run in four different elections. He ran in the 2014 Toronto election, received 797 votes. Uh, that was to be a ward candidate. Then he ran in the 2015 election, federal election, the following year. He received 254 votes. Then he ran for the Canadian's Choice Party, whatever that is, in the 2018 provincial election in uh, Ontario. He ran in Ottawa for some reason. He moved to Ottawa to run for a party. He placed last out of eight candidates with 92 votes. 
I think he's going in the wrong direction here. <laughs> the numbers are going down. And then he ran for mayor of Toronto the same year that he ran <laughs> He ran in Ottawa. Just throw your hat in the ring. <laughs> Wherever over he could. And over. He got 680 votes, less than 1% of the total vote. So I bring up these numbers specifically because he's never garnered anywhere near even 1,000 votes. Mm-hmm. And yet he claims to have a distribution of 50,000 people. So, so I, I mean, I, if you just distribute it to everyone. <laughs> I bring this up exactly. I bring this up to, to sort of prove that even though pe- people in Toronto, people who follow the media have heard of your word news. I've never even seen a copy personally. Apparently your uncle has. But obviously people don't actually like this, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't. We're, we're talking about with, with the Polish newspaper having a circulation of a thousand. Who knows if all of them are, are paying or if they just get it distributed to like community centers or something. Your Word News has a similar kind of shtick. Nobody reads these things. Nobody reads them. Mm-hmm. Do they matter? Both of them are anti-Semitic. Do Jews need to worry about it? Mm-hmm. Well, we were talking before about the Streisand effect, which for those of you who don't know, Barbara Streisand, a picture of her house once surfaced online on some random like listicle of celebrity mansions or something and she really didn't like that so she went through all these legal actions to try to get it taken down of course nobody would have seen the picture before um, but it was only the efforts that she went to to get it taken down that drew attention to it and now it's like there's a whole wikipedia page about it and the picture that she didn't want to be seen is right at the top so i'm bringing this up to say you know if these thousand polish speaking people are anti-Semitic in a corner in Mississauga and nobody knows about it, should we care? And I think the answer is still probably yes. Even though they might be bringing more attention to it, you know, maybe they're getting more clicks on their website than ever before. I mean, first of all, it's really impressive that Pnei Brith can, can find out that there's a, a Polish newspaper with a circulation of a thousand. And how, how does, like some of the stuff they are able I, to report I on. suspect that a Jewish Polish reader saw it and then brought it to their attention a lot of times people flag stuff like this yeah. to to these watchdog groups and that's kind of benebrit's explicit purpose oh for sure but they i mean they're they're actually like going after it like no problem too small it's their and, job and I mean, no but it's i think it's impressive that like and they also got us to write about it but yeah i don't know i mean with all that being said about like this might draw more attention to it and maybe they'll even end up with more readers because of it i don't know if that's true or not i don't know i think you know, it is something to worry about in the sense that, like, if there are people saying, like, trading in anti-Semitism and we don't know about it and then we find out about it, I think, yeah, generally it makes sense to do something. I, I know we published something to CJN by, it was an opinion piece. I don't remember who wrote it, but they're just like, we're giving too much attention to all these, like, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel causes and organizations. Like, why do we care that Norman Finkelstein is, is speaking on the U of T Mississauga campus? Why do we need to report on that? Um, I remember that one because it was mentioned in the article and I wrote that article. Um, And it's just like, I don't know. I mean, I think it is something to consider and question. Like, what's the point where we are giving too much attention to these things and where we're actually helping them in the same way that, you know, media coverage of Trump probably fueled a lot of his rise when it was meant to be... um, Critical of it? Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. But that doesn't mean you can just sit back. So I don't know where the line is. Right. There there are those, I think you just outlined two arguments there, which is on the one hand, you ignore it because nobody cares, but that does lead to a festering and bubbling effect, which in turn gives rise to something like Donald Trump is the extreme example, yeah. but that's the example people look Jordan to. Jordan Peterson also, if people just shut up at the beginning, he wouldn't have become so influential now. 
I don't think that I don't think that Gonyek is going to no, have quite the same so cultural weight as Jordan Peterson. But um, but that is that is the one that is the one thread. If you leave things untouched, and on the other hand, you you do you do risk growing things by writing about them. So it's a bit of a catch twenty two. For what it's worth, I don't think Jews really have to worry about this stuff. I think we can leave it to B'nai Brit and similar watchdog organizations to handle these issues, to call out these people, and to bring it to public attention. You know, the CJN will write about it. I'm, I'm not discrediting the role of watchdogs or the media to point these things out necessarily. But in terms of the everyday Jew, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the Jew who maybe glances over and sees this story, I wouldn't worry too much about the impact of Gunyek uh, right. in, in the global world. I wouldn't worry too much about James Sears, a.k.a. Dimitri the Lover, and <laughs> the influence that he has since being banned from Twitter and losing every election he ever took part and in. And like, going to jail for a year. And going to that's right. <laughs> I didn't really get to that part. Yeah. He he's James Sears was sentenced to a year in jail, and his publisher was sentenced to a year of house arrest for publishing the bafflingly anti-Semitic uh, your word and misogynistic and misogynistic promoting hatred and violence against Jews and women. I encourage everybody to look Winning up combination. <laughs> I encourage everybody to look up uh, the the front cover of your word news. It's literally like a horrible clip art title that's over. Uh, like an I'm, Illuminati eye or it's something. It's an Illumi- It's it's not even. But yeah, it's an Illuminati eye. Oh, it's just an eye. But it's it's um, so poorly distorted. Like they didn't. It, it, like in Microsoft Paint or something. Yeah. Like they just dragged the image across for some reason. Maybe because they couldn't change the arc of your word news, yeah. so they fit the eye to fit the arc. Anyway, I don't think people really need to worry about these nut jobs. Uh, Gonyek, in his defense, probably not. A, a nut job is just a guy with a certain set of beliefs that that is conspiratorial. Your word news truly. Yeah. I mean the guy. The guy looks like Tommy Wiseau. I was from about the to room. say the same thing. I was literally. <laughs> about to, he does. He looks exactly like Tommy Wiseau. Um, but I don't think that I don't think you just have to worry about him just because I think they're so honestly fringe and inconsequential. And and the amount of media coverage we give to James Sears versus the amount of influence the man actually carries is so disproportionate. I mean, it's also kind of a fun story in the sense that, like, like maybe fun's the wrong word, like, wacky and, like, interesting. It's, it's, it's just tabloid. Like, yeah, it's just like, what's going on here? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's kind of it's bizarre and out there. When you look at these extreme examples that we have in Canada, especially compared to the absolute chaos that is happening right now in the United Kingdom, that's happening in the United States, we there's... We in Canada might look around to be like, okay, what crazy sh- <laughs> <laughs> shenanigans? <laughs> People didn't like how much we swore on last week's episode, so I apologize. I'm going to keep it clean. Shenanigans. <laughs> what crazy shenanigans do we have here in Canada? That we can point to and just and just go, what what are these people thinking? And like the best we got is James Sears of Your Word News, and now he's in jail, so we can't even point and yeah. laugh at him. But we we got a lot of coverage out of it. Last up today, we have an interview that I'm very excited about. Emily Nussbaum, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning TV critic for The New Yorker. She has a new book out, uh, came out this summer. It's called I Like to Watch. And if you live in Toronto, she's going to be coming to give a talk at the uh, Toronto Reference Library on October 16th. I will be there. You should be there. Uh, But if you can't make it, at least... Stay tuned, and you can hear her right now. So uh, I read the first uh, 
essay in your book, um, and in it you talk about how you were on this academic path, this literary path, you're doing a PhD, and you decided to stop in part because of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which led you, started you on the path to TV criticism. So I'm wondering if you could just explain that uh, for me a little bit. Yes, I was a, I was a graduate student at NYU. I, I had gotten my master's in poetry. I was in the doctoral program. I was sort of moving forward toward my dissertation in Victorianist. And then I watched this episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1997, and it kind of knocked my hair back and kind of neurologically changed me. I didn't actually become a TV critic right away, but um, I was really fascinated by the show. I became kind of a super fan, which is obviously different than becoming a critic. Um, And it got me through that very interested in TV and in the critical conversation about TV, the condescension that people had toward it as a medium and how much it was changing. Um, And so I ended up leaving graduate school and getting into journalism. And it took a little while before I actually became a TV critic, but I I do feel like that was the origins of my interest. And it was less in being a critic than it was in television itself. I was really fascinated by the nature of TV. And that's what this book is about. It's about celebrating TV as TV. When you decided to go into journalism, did you have in the back of your mind that your dream job would be TV critic? Or, Or were you just not even thinking about it at that point? Well, I mean, I I think I had a a general interest in TV as something that I was uh, personally fascinated by. I definitely wasn't thinking of becoming a TV critic. I also had um, somewhat of a resistance to writing arts criticism in general. I had done some of it. I I wrote, because I had a background in poetry, I had written some reviews of poetry. And um, I ended up feeling like I needed to stop doing that because it made me too emotionally uncomfortable because I felt like I was writing for the New York Times And it felt to me like poetry was a medium that people um, held in a high elevated state, like they respected, but very few people read. One person created it for a small amount of money and a a review, even a mixed review in such a prominent place felt like this act of cruelty. And this is this thing I always say, but then I discovered television, which is the opposite of poetry. And it felt to me like um, TV was a, it's a, First of all, it's a collaborative medium made for a mass audience that people look down on. And my feeling about it was that criticizing a TV show was actually a way of praising TV. It was a way of saying TV should and could be great. Um, And my interest in a lot of ways really was in television itself, not in arts criticism. And that's how I ended up doing this. So, yes, writing television criticism was a way of talking out loud about my deep interest in the medium. Um, Yeah, I didn't have any particular plans to become a TV critic. But I I did a bunch of different kinds of journalism before this. I wrote a a lot of different kinds of features. I wrote for Lingua Franca, which is this magazine about academia. I was the editor of the culture section at New York Magazine. So um, I, 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 you know, and even in this book, I have things that are not criticism. I have uh, three profiles of TV makers in there as well. Now, I'm uh, the pop culture critic here at at the Canadian Jewish News. So I, I empathize a lot with, uh, with with uh, with your job and with your work, and I, I write about a, a lot of the same shows, particularly the Jewish ones. Um, for me, I find that writing about a show that I'm a fan of, namely like Man Seeking Woman, Crazy Ex Girlfriend, Broad City, like a lot of these great Jewish shows of the last few years, um, I find it sometimes difficult to write an interesting article that's not just watch this show. Like I, I'm curious about how you transitioned from fan to critic. 
because um, that's a transition I'm still trying to figure out. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, and I'm, I'm sympathetic with that. It's interesting. They're definitely different things. I mean, being a fan is not the same as being a critic. It's interesting. I don't have the same experience. A lot of people enjoy writing negative reviews more. I actually enjoy writing about things that I love and care passionately about. Um, but I do feel like any review like that has to be more than cheerleading. Otherwise, it's not interesting criticism. Um, but... You know, it's it's funny. That's that's so great. So, like, let's talk about Jewish shows because that's interesting. So, your focus is you focus on um, shows with a strong, strong Jewish um, component to them. I'm glad you mentioned Man Seeking Woman. People don't talk about that show a whole lot. No, not nearly enough. I think. And I have thought it, of it, but that that's that is actually a good example. I think it's so good, and I think it ended at the right time too. After three seasons, like. Uh, I'm not sure if you watched it till the very end. I remember reading that you were sort of hit and miss on it, but like it ended on such a strong note, I think, and like not a season too, not an episode too soon. I'm not, I, you know, it was a, it was long enough ago that I'm not sure. I think I watched the final season of it. Yeah, I did feel it was a hit and miss show, but when it hit, it hit hard. And, you know, I'm very into comedy and it was a strong original comedy with a very particular tone to it and it had very good performances. It was also just fun to talk about. And, you know, there's a different thing that's about whether something is good or not, but whether it's interesting to discuss, and that definitely fit in that category. I mean, those are the shows that I love, is shows that I both admire and are also fun to chew on a little bit and to debate about and to sort of take apart and talk about the elements of and how it was made and what's good about it. So I, I, I feel like that can be a different thing than simply writing something that is celebratory. But there are, I will say there are definitely times that I'm writing a column that I feel it has a mild evangelical aspect to it, because sometimes there are small, beautiful shows that not enough people have seen, and I want people to see them. But I feel like using the platform to talk about the show is a way of making people interested in it. And that's enough without the sort of rah-rah part. But the truth is, a lot of the shows that I like have incredibly low ratings. You mentioned Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That was one of the most interesting shows of the last few years. It also completely hit my sweet spot. It was this funny, weird, dark show about Jewishness and mental illness, and it was a musical. So I loved it. But it was, I think, the lowest-rated show uh, for a while. But that just doesn't matter to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not in the industry. Rachel Bloom also won a, also won a Golden Globe for it, though, so... I feel like it did have critical appeal, even if it didn't have audience appeal. So the CW might have kept well, on for that reason. Well, it's a classical category. It's like the thing that has, yes, that critics love and not that many people have seen. But it, it, I mean, I'm just grateful to whatever was going on economically in the industry that allowed them to complete the show and have three full <laughs> seasons. Um, because that's, I, I've always been fascinated by times when a low-rated show is allowed to survive, you know, sometimes because there's great management that recognizes its value. But sometimes just because TV economics are so confusing, I always bring this up, but 30 Rock, which is one of my favorite shows, is a very low-rated show. But it survived because its network, NBC, was a failing network at the time. So they didn't actually have that much more to put on the air, hmm. and it was a bit of a critic's darling. So I'm like, whatever works. <laughs> whatever keeps the good show on the air, I am for that. Just to stay on the theme of, of Jewish shows for a second, I, I, I wrote an essay a few uh, months ago for the CJN that was about this golden age of Jewish television that we're experiencing, right? Which shows, like the ones I just mentioned, also Transparent, Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, I was going to say Transparent, um, Broad City. 
Um, I know you've noticed this trend as well, because uh, I, was, I was reading your, your review from a few years ago on Broad City, and uh, if I may just quote it for a second, you say, you, you, you compare Broad City to girls saying, they're also secular Jews in a way that network sitcoms never allowed characters to be in the 90s, when Seinfeld and yeah. Friends and Mad About You smushed New Yorkers into an ethnically vanilla, network-friendly neutrality. Um, I've, I've noticed the same thing. Uh, I'm curious as to why you think that uh, Jew this Jewish renaissance has been taking place. Well, I, I don't know the exact reasons, but that's really interesting. I forgot that I wrote that, but it is a pet idea of mine or theme. I mean, it's not just me who said this. There's, a, there's, I mean, this is just baked into network television, and there's all these jokes about it, like the tradition of, like, you know, right Yiddish, cast, cast British, that yeah. whole thing. and. Yeah. I mean, there's. I think it's just explicitly true of this set of sitcoms in the 90s, and there was a lot of debate about it during the 90s, where you had something like Seinfeld that felt like an incredibly Jewish show, but where slightly mysteriously Elaine Bennis, who was a character I remember being very excited about, because it was like, oh, they're a very recognizably like Jewish <laughs> woman in New York. It's like Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She has all this curly hair. Like, it, she's in publishing. I don't know. She just seems sort of stereotypically like she must be Jewish. But then the show appeal. established her as in, as a shiksa who Jewish men were attracted to. And it was like, this is very confusing. Um, there were, you know, that was one of these shows. And people would debate about this a lot. But Mad About You was a little more explicitly Jewish. They they actually, for whatever reason, the creators of that show were were clear about the fact that that was a show about a Jewish man married to a non-Jewish woman. But Friends is the biggest source of debate. This is like fascinating to me because I felt like the three main characters, uh, not the three main characters, there's six characters on the show, but three of them seem to me to be clearly not just Jewish, but like Jewish kids from Long Island who had grown up in a certain kind of like five towns milieu where people got nose jobs and like married dentists named Barry. I mean, to me, it was a very specific show, but the show was very vague about mm -hmm. their ethnicity in a way that I found that real life New York Jews would never be. So I don't know what accounts for the fact that now Broad City and shows like that are able to be so much more blunt, but I think it's a huge relief because my feeling is that specificity almost always creates the best comedy because it allows it to be universal without being kind of mushy. Um, but it, it, I, I, I've had big arguments online about whether Rachel Green is, is canonically Jewish because <laughs> what fascinated me when I started talking about it on Twitter is that there's a certain set of the audience that was so used to the idea that that anyone that a nerdy Jewish man like Ross was obsessed with, who was a cheerleader and everything, must be a shiksa. Like, and so I literally started collecting data like a maniacal Jew, not a Jew person, which is a crazy thing to do. Where it's like, no, Rachel Green, who lives in an apartment owned by her, her Bubba Ida? <laughs> like, she's Jewish. So finally I found a shot of her wearing literally a Star of David necklace. So I was like, I won, but... There is counter-arguments wow. as well. But I, I didn't think know this that. is how people I, treat TV shows. I thought it yeah. was just the Gellers. I will say that the major counter-argument to this is that her sisters are played by... Um, who plays her sisters on the show? It's like... Uh, I'm blanking. On the, it's like Reese Witherspoon and... It's two women who seem 
straightforwardly to be non-Jewish. And so, you know, <laughs> it's just an enjoyable thing to argue about. But yeah. the larger point you make, I think, is true. And and I, I've appreciated shows that are re- recently so granular that it's just undeniable, and then you can delve into it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you've, you've written about um, not necessarily the Jewish trend, but, but you have written about the trend with regards to uh, more uh, authentic representation of women, people of color, particularly African-American creators right now. Like, it, it just seems like the whole trend, especially with the rise of um, streaming networks and individual watching experiences, uh, has led to this this door being opened for Jewish creators. Like, Jewish creators are just part of it, right? Asian-Americans as well. Yeah, I, think Jewish I know you're a Kim's Convenience part, fan. Uh, part of the expansion. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's all. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, I I just wanted to give a shout out to Kim's Convenience because it's a Canadian show. I know I know you watch it as mm-hmm. well. I love Kim's Convenience. I watch a lot of sort of family sitcoms with my kids, and right now there's just a wonderful variety of different kinds of families. And I think Kim's Convenience is a lovely show, uh, and it's fun for them because their family is half Canadian, and so it has sort of mm-hmm. a feeling of Toronto that's very nice to watch. Um, but yeah, on the lar- on the larger issue of that, I, I I mean I think this is one of the advantages of there being uh, what people often call peak TV. There are problems with there being too much television, but it allows people to create um, small shows with potentially niche audiences. One thing I would say is I'm not sure that that expansion and representation has all come from streaming, because a lot of it has actually happened on network TV. I mean, for a while ABC was the place where, as I always talk about. To me, the key is variety. It's like if you have multiple black creators, none of them have to be the black creator. And there was this wonderful year when uh, Blackish and Kenya Barris uh, were on ABC. Shonda Rhimes had three different shows on the network. And American Crime, which was created by, I think John Ridley is the creator. And it was like three African-American showrunners, completely different styles of TV. And I really felt like this is what we're looking for. Like, like broader representation and stuff that gets to expand beyond just being a good role model or one type of art as being seen as representative of any marginalized group. So I I think that there is, you know, there's still improvement to happen, but anyway, that happened on network television. It didn't happen on HBO. So there was something to be said for, you know, multiple um, methods of, of kind of opening the doors. But do you think that, like what? What year was that? Did that follow the 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 beginning of the HBO revolution, or was that before it? it, it well, H yeah. I mean, HBO. I, I mean, this is not to fault HBO. HBO has a lot of amazing shows, and HBO had The Wire, which is actually a big re- big representational breakthrough in its way. Um, but I, I I wouldn't. I'm just saying I wouldn't say that like um, fancy niche cable networks have better gender and racial representations than broad network. Uh, models like it, it really it really has varied and uh, you have to look at the numbers for it but that definitely predated a lot of uh the HBO, hbo shows the last few years i mean i'm trying to remember what year was that um it was when i was writing about blackish but at this point of course all of those people are no longer on abc <laughs> shonda Rhimes and kenya barris are both on netflix and jo- i don't think john ridley's making a show but but i'm j- all i'm saying is i i, I think I think that the, the 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 industry changes are too complicated to be summed up as niche places make for better representation, broad places don't have it. Um, I, I think it's it's a little more complicated. 
at yeah. least from my perspective. No, fair enough. Do you then agree that the, or, or do you notice that the trend has been starting to decline a little bit? Um, a lot of the shows, a lot of the very Jewish shows in particular, the ones made by millenni- by millennials specifically, have, have ended or are ending this year, like Crazy X, Broad City, Transparent is ending this year, although it's not a millennial-made show. But um, I feel like there was this era where it was very popular to be to if you were Jewish to write these authentically Jewish characters and that era is somewhat ending and I'm not sure if the next projects are going to be as Jewish. Well, I, I I'm not sure myself. I'm trying to think of what what is out there right now um, in terms of. I mean, I think most people who read my column on Mrs. Maisel know how I feel about the show. I'm not a fan. Um, yeah, we'll 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 get to that. We'll get to your thoughts on Mrs. Maisel. But um, but I'm trying I'm trying to I I mean you know it's it's hard to look at the the big picture of all the shows on TV and say what will happen next or even what's happening right now because there are so many shows. But it, it it's true that the the specificity of those things. I mean you know look I hope Rachel Bloom makes another show. She's she was particularly great at that. I mean God I I just owe her so much. For, I mean like that was one of those things where I was like. I'm from Scarsdale, so I'm like, oh. it's like to write a song like Jap Rap Battle is very, is like a very specific appeal to me. Um, and then you know, uh, we suffered and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah. luckily, because of how TV works right now, that stuff is still available, so I can listen to the songs all the time. Oh, but yeah. I'm trying to think who who out there is making stuff that is, you know, specifically Jewish in subject matter. Well, I will say that I'm about to review Our Boys. That is specifically Jewish. Well, subject yeah, I mean that's an Israeli show, though. <laughs> Although Israeli, yeah, it's Israeli... Made, but it's made simultaneously by Israel and HBO. It's a very, very good drama. I understand why it's like very difficult material, but it's it's quite powerful. So. And and the prime minister, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, denounced the show, called it anti-Semitic. Yes, I'm aware. <laughs> that is bananas. Yeah. Like it's great, but I understand why that is happening. It's it's baked in to the situation, but. Um, it's a whole other subject and <laughs> very hard to get into. Yeah. I mean, is, Israeli television in its own is, I think, a, a, a it's, it's also kind of having a moment with shows like Fauda, Our Boys, uh, uh, Shtisel is very popular. Are you watching Shtisel? Yes. I have not. Although when I've been on my book tour, um, everywhere that I've gone that has a Jewish book reading audience has asked me about Shtisel. So I really need to get on the ball because <laughs> um, I just same. didn't catch up with it. I'm the one. I think I'm I'm the pop culture critic at the Canadian Jewish News, and I think I'm the one person who hasn't watched Shtisel because everyone else yeah. has written about Shtisel, and it's like I don't need to add another like thing to this. I don't need to contribute. I mean, look, I'm sure it is a great show, and I would like to watch it. It's literally just a time management problem. But I did an event recently where, you know, people ask great questions. Like, I love answering questions from the audience, but it's really hilarious because I think people asked me maybe seven or eight questions, and three of them were a vegetable. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Um, I mean, I don't know what the ratings are for the show. I was actually just talking with another interviewer about this, and he was like, well, you know, Americans are really into Israeli TV. And I was like, are they? And I was like, it seems to me like there's a real wonderful expansion in people being able to watch global TV. Like, there are shows in other countries mm-hmm. that are accessible, but I'm not sure. Is just so, like, a phenomenon beyond the Jewish-American and Jewish-Canadian TV-watching population? I, I don't know the ratings. Maybe it is. I, I was I, under the impression it was genuinely popular, but especially within the Jewish world. But, uh, again, well, judging from my we're two people who haven't watched... Question. We're two people who haven't watched this show, so we probably <laughs> probably can't contribute too much to it. Um, 
So you're talking a lot about uh, Jewish characters you identify with, like Rachel Bloom. You mentioned uh, Elaine Bennis, who, for all intents and purposes, is Jewish. My my question was simply what, in the last decade, if there was a Jewish character who you most represented, uh, who you felt, who you most identified with, I should say. Who I've most identified with. I'm yeah. trying to think about this. I mean, because I don't really identify with, uh, you know, the character in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's I okay. just love it's the character. It's okay to um, say Mrs. Maisel. It is definitely not Mrs. Maisel. Nothing against Mrs. Maisel, but she dresses way better than I do. Um, let me see. Uh, is there a Jewish character that I... You know, there was... A, this is a really silly thing to say, but it's true. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I have extremely curly hair. And... Um, there was a period when there were not people with curly hair on TV. And then there was this wonderful moment. This has nothing to do with, like, Jewish characters or anything. But there was this wonderful moment on ER a long time ago where suddenly, like, four characters, a mixture of black women and white women, had very curly hair. And there, I realized that I was doing this thing where I was collecting characters on TV that I could see who had very curly hair. So when um, Broad City came out, and, like, they just... There was something really meaningful to me about them just looking the way they did. It was a really big deal to me. And this isn't about being Jewish. This is about the kinds of people who are kind of visually allowed to be on TV. Hmm. So that was something that was meaningful. But I'm trying to think if there's any character. Like, I'm not personally looking for characters, you know, to be me or to be my mirror. I'm just more looking for characters to fascinate me. But so I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, actually honestly fair. having trouble thinking. No, of like, you know, I love Transparent. I think it's an amazing show. I don't, I, you know, I don't identify. I don't think any of the characters are exactly like me. Maybe I'm looking for shows where characters are not like me. Do you identify with a particular character? Um, I, I mean, I was, I was pretty into Josh Greenberg from Man Seeking Woman. I, I felt a great kinship with him. Yeah, he was a great character. A, a lot of the shows, to be honest, are created by women and starring women as well. The, the Jewish shows, I mean, like Broad City, Crazy Eggs, Yeah, the Jewish shows. Uh, Mrs. Maisel Girls. Um, so there aren't, and and I, I don't know what what to make of that. I think it's just part of a larger trend of more uh, female showrunners. But yeah, although I mean, historically it was all male showrunners making shows like oh, of course, the single guy and, and like you know. And I want to clarify, I'm not coming at this from a from a uh, like men too kind of uh, <laughs> perspective. I'm, no, I thought it was I think these, these, point because these shows I literally right. was like, you know, TV is not in TV has gotten a lot better for women in the last few years. But I just looked at a piece today that showed the numbers. The numbers are actually not great. Like they've improved, but not massively. So when you said that, I was thinking, is that true? I think of there as being like a lot of male Jewish writers on TV. But it, what is true is what you say. The last few years, in terms of these, I mean, there's just been a breakout of specific small shows by women about their lives. Sometimes dark comedies that have this um, charged originality to them. And many of them, if they're by Jews, are by women. Like, they're, they're just, like, by Jewish women rather than Jewish men making that yeah. kind of show. On on, on the note uh, of, of Judaism and feminism, then, on, uh, and we can sort of close out on this, uh, I know a lot of our listeners, a lot of readers do love Mrs. Maisel. I personally quite love The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You have a rather... Uh, uh, Polemical, polemical, contrarian, exactly, take on, on the show. So tell me, why should I resent Mrs. Maisel? You should not. You love it, and that's wonderful. I don't, I'm not trying to tell somebody to dislike a show that they like. And I have to say, for a very negative review about a show that I understood was popular and people were finding great comfort and sweetness in, but I really felt put off by and, and did not appeal to me, 
um, when I wrote that review, I got a lot of notes from people who felt the same way. So basically, I think sometimes with criticism, one of the roles that you can fulfill is to say the critical thing that a part of the audience feels, but feels unable to say during something that's essentially a sweeping phenomenon. I didn't write it to be contrarian. Actually, I felt the same way during the first year of the show, but I deliberately didn't write a piece because I was like, wow, everyone's just like so excited about this. And, you know, I just didn't feel like pissing on people's enjoyment. I felt like I'll wait until the second season, see how I feel. Maybe I will think it's better. And then I can write a piece about how I changed my mind. But I watched the second season and I actually thought it was worse. I mean, I actually, to be fair to the show, I wrote that piece after the first few episodes of the second season. And I do think that the, the back half of the season is, while I still don't like the show, I think it's a lot better. But I, I'm glad that I wrote it because I felt like it was both cathartic and it definitely spoke for part of the audience. I agree. The the Paris stuff at the very beginning of, of that season was, was not my favorite part. But once she starts getting into the comedy, it gets a lot more fun. But but fair enough. I hear you. I, I, will say, I will say the second half of that season has the only performance by Mrs. Maisel that I think is a funny comedy performance. I thought the whole first season, it was just this baffling wish fulfillment craziness where an you know a performer would get up perform a not that funny act and the audience would go bananas and be like you're better than everyone else i always felt um, of it but i always felt it was a lot like a musical but without the music like it has that kind of perfect airy dreamlike quality to it but i like it for that reason like it feels choreographed okay can i say something people are always saying this and i'm always like what that sounds terrible who would want to watch the book of a musical <laughs> without the music uh, it, like books of musicals are notoriously like clunky and pedantic they're lead-ups to the songs the songs are what express the past i mean i love musicals but I, I do agree that visually it definitely has some of the pleasures of a musical i mean i enjoy that as much as anyone um i like a nice skirt it I, looks I really would, good but, i would argue that there's a lyrical quality to the dialogue like they always you know especially among the fathers where they talk up like this and then they answer like this and then it kind of goes like like there's a very just just smooth and dancey quality it's it's very uh look, you're not going to agree with me about this because yeah. this is just something we disagree okay, about i mean fine, it, fair. the thing is Amy Sherman Palladino is part of a school of TV makers, and they include um, Aaron Sorkin, uh, her, um, uh, I'm sorry, who's uh, who's the guy who did uh, Boston Common and Alan McBeal? I don't know. Um, I, I never watched those I'm shows. I'm just blanking on his name, but okay. in, in Northern Exposure, like, and, um, and, and then to a certain extent, Shonda Rhimes. There are these, there are creators who are screwball dialogue writers, and that's Amy Sherman Palladino's sweet spot. It's why mm. people love the Gilmore Girls, a show which I was only medium on. Um, and it's why people love Bunheads, which I loved. I loved Bunheads, but gone yes, too soon. The Bunheads. The whole dialogue patter thing is big on that show. But I hate the scenes with the parents because I find, especially her in-laws, to be literally such candied caricatures. They to me border on offensive. <laughs> Look, and I say this as somebody who comes from a family that has, I think, a somewhat similar background. There's a weird. I mean, this is all extremely specific Jewish background stuff, but there's a confusion to me in that show about where people are from because it kind of comes off as Miss Maisel's family is from a sort of upper class, um, fancy, educated, wealthy German Jewish background, and um, Joel's family is kind of Polish Russian, you know, garment worker types, which is what my family comes from. Hmm. And I feel like they are presented as like 
cartoons of coarseness, greed, and ignorance. And it actually genuinely bothers me. I mean, I'm not normally sensitive about this kind of stuff. But I think that's why, despite your loving the dialogue, stuff falls flat for me. Fair enough. We can leave it at that. Um, I feel like I've taken up more than enough of your time. Emily, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again to Emily Nussbaum for coming on the podcast. Once again, her book is I Like to Watch. You can find it in bookstores or on uh, Amazon right now. She's also coming to Toronto October 16th at the Toronto Reference Library. Tickets are going on on sale. I don't, they're not actually going on sale. I think tickets will be freely available, but you can register soon. As usual, this podcast is hosted by myself and Alex. Hey. Hi, Alex. And uh, I edit it myself. David Collin is our promotions manager and avocado aficionado. Our intro music is by Vanya Zhuk, and our outro music is by Lache Swing. You should follow us on Facebook and Twitter. CJN Podcasts is our handle. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode for more schmoozing. See you then. <laughs>